and to open to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. It's going to be towards the end of your Bible. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, uh, Mr. Welt there is going to be passing out some, and so you could just raise your hand and you'll get a copy there. So this morning, we are going to be in Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. For the majority of our year, we are going to spend the time walking through this very, very important book. And our hope is, is that as we do, that we will see and we will grow in our understanding of the authority and of the glory of Jesus. I think as a culture, many of us have a concept of who Jesus was, what Jesus did. And oftentimes, culturally speaking, as a community, as a society... Um, that understanding of Jesus does not always line up with Scripture. And so the Gospel of Mark is a beautiful, it's a wonderful narrative because it just walks through very succinctly, very quickly, the different things that Jesus said and the different things that Jesus did. And so our hope is, you know, really when we get to Easter, that we will have a, a really, really beautiful understanding of who Jesus is. I feel like I'm really loud. Is this really loud or not? No, it's okay. Fantastic. All right. I'll just keep going. Thank you. Yes. All right. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Just to introduce uh, the story, we have two stories we're going to be looking at this morning. And just to introduce them, I'm going to read what I think is really the central verse of this passage. And it's Mark chapter 2, verses, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we turn our eyes and our attention now to your word, Father, I pray that that you would show us and reveal to us your truth. Lord, I pray that you would free this place of distractions as much as possible, Lord, and that you would be exalted, that if there are scales that are keeping our eyes from seeing you, Lord, that you would allow those to fall to the ground. Lord, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, This past winter, my family and I took a trip to Belize. We went to see my uh, wife's family. It was shortly after Noelle, our youngest, was born, and um, we had an opportunity just to show her to her grandparents down there. And anyone who has done much traveling with an infant knows that it can be a very stressful time. Towards the end of our trip, we started to notice that Noelle was just not acting like herself. Um, She was not sleeping well, and she was more fussy than usual, and we were concerned parents. And so we thought, well, you know, we only have a few days left here, but maybe she has an ear infection. Who knows what's going on? Let's let's try and get her to see a doctor. Um, Going to a doctor in Belize is much different than it is is than going to a a doctor here in the States. Um, Most doctors, they they work at the hospital, but they also will have some sort of a private practice that they run out of their home. And so um, we got wind of a doctor that lived in the area, and we reached out to them, and they were not home, and they directed us to maybe another doctor we could see. And so we kind of just went from home to home, doctor to doctor, until we found somebody who was actually at home seeing patients. And it was early in the morning, and so we get to this home, and we, we knock on the door, and a voice comes from within, who's there? And, and we state our name and our, plea our case before them. Would you be willing to see our baby girl? And response comes back, yes, 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 just give me a minute. I'll be right with you. Let me just get ready. And so my wife, Noelle, um, her brother, were, were standing there for probably five minutes, and 
And then the door opens up, and then standing before us is the doctor who is going to examine our one-month-old baby. And he is wearing a tank top and a shirt and underwear, okay? And we just kind of, like, we just sat here for five minutes while you got ready, and this is what you could do. I would have hated to have seen what kind of condition you were in before you got ready, okay? So... We spent the next couple of minutes in the doctor's office and the entire examination and office visit, he just sat there just very freely in his underwear and held our baby. And he was a fantastic doctor. He did an awesome job, um, you know, assured us as parents that she was going to be okay. And uh, needless to say, it was a doctor's visit like one I had never had before and one I hope you never have to have, okay? All right. Um, what we will see in this text this morning is that Jesus ultimately is put before us this morning as the great physician. And in a very, very, very different way, he leaves us hopefully with an impression that you will never, ever forget. An appointment with him ultimately is what we all need and our hope is this morning is that you would see that as a result of this appointment, much like Noel ended up getting better after she saw this doctor, that your life will be forever changed. We are entering a portion of Mark that is characterized by conflict. If there was a word you could put over the next chapter, that would be the word, conflict. Jesus has been doing what Jesus does. He has been going about Galilee preaching the gospel and performing miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick. Last week, Jeremy showed us specifically how he healed a leper. As a result, Jesus has grown in popularity and crowds are drawn to him like a magnet, amazed by his message and desperate to witness the miracle worker in action. With his increased popularity, Jesus also began to attract the attention of the religious leaders. With Jesus causing such a stir in the area, naturally the religious leaders, the religious elite of that area, saw Jesus primarily as a threat to the religious establishment. There are five confrontations that Jesus will have from the beginning here in chapter 2 through the first verses in chapter 3. Today we're going to look just at two of these stories and these stories will be helpful in showing us the authority of Jesus and ultimately the glory of Jesus. What we will see as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark is really this is Mark's aim. Mark's aim is to show us that Jesus himself has supreme authority over all of creation, over the winds, over the demons, over illness. Jesus reigns as king, and thus he is also glorious. He is amazing. He is awesome. He wants to show us that throughout the gospel. Jesus, you know, for some of us, if you were to ask the question, is Jesus a man of peace? I think this is a question that many of us, even today, in the midst of, of division, um, in the midst of war and uncertainty, many of us cling to the concept, the idea that Jesus was a man of peace. And if you were to be asked the question, was Jesus a man who was primarily about peace, or was he a man who was primarily about conflict, most of us would say, well, peace. He was the prince of peace. But what we learn from studying his life is that John chapter 1 verse 14 describes Jesus as a man who was full of grace. He was about peace, but he was also a man who was full of truth. And oftentimes, Jesus' commitment to truth caused 
division. Jesus' commitment to truth caused conflict. What we will see this morning is conflict was there. Jesus even sought it out. He drew it out. His commitment to truth ultimately would lead to his death, to opposition. I think the same is true for us. The same should be present in our life as we hold fast to a strong commitment of God's truth in a day and age that may be hostile towards his truth, we will see opposition as well. It's a lesson for us. So the first confrontation we see, in the first story, we learn specifically how this physician, how Jesus, the great physician, heals. We will see that ultimately Jesus is able to meet our deepest need. So if you have your text open, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we'll just walk through this story. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. During this part of his ministry, his home base was Capernaum. Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee, and he makes his home in Capernaum. Jesus had this awesome rhythm throughout his years in ministry where he would go out and be very public. He would do marvelous things. He would teach the crowds. He would do miracles, but then he would retreat, and he would withdraw. During this particular point in his ministry, retreating was getting harder and harder him to do. He was causing a stir. People were drawn to him. Even now as he retreats, he finds himself in a home. Most scholars believe this to be Peter and and Andrew, his brother Peter's brother Andrew's home. And so even as he retreats into this home, he is still found amidst a crowd, people who are clinging to his every word. So Jesus is here in this home, in this, what is seriously a massive house party. This place is slammed. There is no room, not even to fit through the door. Then, in the middle of his sermon, in the middle of him doing what he does, proclaiming the kingdom of God, there is an interruption. There is an interruption. Five men catch word that Jesus is in town. Jesus has returned. One of them, a paralytic, unable to walk, they see this as their chance. This is the opportunity they've been waiting for. If they can just get this man, their friend, to Jesus, this is their only hope. This is their only hope. This is their opportunity. As they approach the house, they hear the commotion, they see the crowd, and unable to make their way into the home, one of them looks outside and simply says, Roof. Let's get to the roof. And that day, it would have been a flat roof, and there would have been stairs outside of the home, and so they make their way up the stairs. They get on the the roof, and they begin to dismantle the roof. The literal text says, they unroof the roof. So there they are, unroofing the roof. Jesus and the crowds are in the house teaching. Can you imagine? I mean, we deal with our fair share of distractions here at Parkview East. All right, But could you imagine being here on a Sunday morning and a sawzall is cutting through the roof? Right? I mean, there's probably been worse here, quite frankly, on Sunday mornings. But 
Jesus is doing what oftentimes I just do, continue to preach, all right? Just continue to go for it, regardless of the distraction. And so Jesus is proclaiming the word. I can imagine everybody's attention is drawn up, listening, looking. What is happening to this man? What is happening here? And all of a sudden, as Jesus mid-sermon is teaching, a man is lowered down on a mattress, on a mattress before Jesus, lowered down on a mattress. And I love how Jesus responds. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus is interrupted by this man and his friends. Everyone in the house can see him, and it is obvious why this man is making his way to Jesus. I can imagine the crowds, as great as Jesus' teaching is, I'm sure many of them are thinking, this is our chance. We get to see the miracle worker in action. I'm sure if it was today, they would be standing there with their cell phones just waiting and waiting and waiting for the miracle so they could snap it out to their friends. That's exactly what they would be doing. They're anxious. They see a miracle is on its way. The paralytic himself, what was he expecting? What was he hoping to hear Jesus say? Most likely something like, be healed or walk. But instead, he gets, son, your sins are forgiven. I can imagine what must be running through his head. Like, no, 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 no. Legs. Legs, Jesus, I'm here for my legs. I want you to fix my legs. They don't work. That's why I came to you on a mattress from the roof, okay? Fix my legs. I'm not here to get my sins forgiven. I need my legs healed. That is the issue for the paralytic. If you can do this one thing, Jesus, Everything else in my life will be fixed. Everything else will be okay. I will be able to, to walk so I can work. I can make a living. I can maybe go on a date. I can potentially have a family. I can live a normal life in my society. This one thing, these legs work, please. That's what he comes to Jesus to do. However, Jesus goes somewhere else. Jesus knows that actually the central thing that needs healed is this man's soul. The one thing that will radically change his life forever is not the ability to walk, but the ability to be forgiven. Jesus meets a need that is so deep, the paralytic doesn't even recognize its presence in his life. You came to me in faith, in great faith, that I might do a work to your legs, but first, I'm going to do a work on your soul. This ultimately is the way of Jesus. We come to him thinking we know exactly what we need from him. We come to him thinking this one thing, this job, or, or this money, or my marriage, or a relationship, or my family, or my loneliness, or my illness, 
Whatever you want to fill in the blank, this one thing we bring before Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He knows better, and he goes deeper. Jesus is able to do far greater than even this paralytic had in mind. He goes way deeper than the paralytic wanted. Now, I love the phrase, Jesus saw their faith. What a wonderful statement. As Jesus sees this thing happen before him, this man lowered down on a mattress by ropes by four faithful friends who have to get him to Jesus, Jesus looks and the Bible says he sees their faith. To me, that was a phrase that just jumped out of the text. The Bible tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. That's what faith is by definition, is not something you're able to see. As I look out here now and, and I ask myself, who has faith? I don't know. I don't know. But if I were to ask myself, who has faith in the chairs? I could see. I could see who has faith in the chairs. Ben in the back does not have faith in the chairs. My man is standing, okay? But I can see you have faith in that chair. Faith is visible. Faith, Jesus sees their faith. What a wonderful reminder that faith in and of itself does not sit idle. It is marked by activity. Is your faith active? Is your faith active? What a crazy thing. What crazy thing is your faith leading you to do? That if you did it, could not be explained apart from your faith. Faith is active. You should be able to see its presence working in your life. Is your faith active? The paralytic was not the only one who was shocked by the behavior of Jesus. What started out as a healing quickly turns ultimately to a fight. The scribes, they were teachers of the law, were also present in the home, most likely there to discredit Jesus, maybe secretly interested in what this rabbi was up to. The major, but they had a major problem with what Jesus just said. As, as curious as they may have been before, now they've got a problem. Now some of the scribes, the Bible says, were sitting there questioning in their hearts why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that those that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. These scribes, these men who have a problem with what Jesus is saying, son, your sins are forgiven, they are experts and the Old Testament law. They know it inside and out. They know that the forgiveness of sins, that the forgiving, this act of forgiving sins, is the work of God alone. 
Nobody else can forgive sins. It is to be done one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. It's done by the holy priest within the holiest of holies of the temple. It is not done in the basement or in the living room of a common fisherman by, by a rabbi who has clearly lost his marbles. This was blasphemy, a crime in their days punishable by death. Ultimately, this was the crime that was alleged that Jesus committed that would lead him to the cross, punishable by death. And Jesus, seeing them question in their hearts, he looks right into their hearts, and, and rather than just continuing on with his teaching, he stops. He sees what's in their hearts, and Jesus pulls it out. He brings the conflict, the confrontation to light. He doesn't just ignore it and continue on with his business. He draws it out. He engages them, his critics, to explain that ultimately his, this forgiveness is a sign of his authority. The healing that Jesus is about to perform on this man ultimately is a sign of his authority. So as they question, ultimately what they're doing is questioning his authority in their hearts. Then he goes and he heals the man to prove, hey, which one is easier for me to do? I could say, son, your sins are forgiven. That's an easy thing to say. But to heal him, that requires power. Watch my power at work. Boom. The guy gets up and walks, picks up his mattress, and leaves. This is who Jesus is. He shows us that he is able to meet our deepest needs while confronting the religious understanding of how you come to God. They're, they're upset about how this man made access to Jesus. They're upset about what Jesus claimed he could offer this man. They are not pleased. And Jesus shows them the truth. It was their faith that paved the way, not to a temple, not through the high priest, but to Jesus in the living room of a common fisherman, radically altering their understanding of how you get to God. That's the first confrontation. It shows us how this great physician heals. He heals us even to our deepest needs. Now, the second story, we learn more about this physician, specifically who this physician is to heal, who he is to heal. We learned how, now the focus is on who. So immediately after the paralytic gets up and leaves and walks out, Mark goes on to the next story. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So Jesus is back at it. He resumes his teaching ministry. This time he heads out by the sea so far, we've seen him going throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, preaching in the homes. Now he's in the countryside preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling men to repentance and to believe in the gospel. And as he is teaching, Jesus comes across a tax booth where he finds Levi, also called Matthew. Levi's doing his job. He's collecting taxes for the occupying government, Roman government. He, although he has a Jewish name, ultimately they would view... Levi as a collaborator with the Roman government. He's working for the enemy. Levi is a thief. Most tax collectors embezzled funds. Matthew is a traitor in the eyes of his own people. He was an extortioner. He was a robber. He was an outcast, a despised position within the community. He was a representative of a government that nobody liked and didn't trust. That's who he was. But Jesus doesn't see him that way. Jesus 
For Jesus, Levi is not too dirty. He's not too sinful for Jesus. Jesus wants him. So Jesus calls him, follow me. Levi obeys. He leaves everything he has and he follows Jesus. And the text goes on in verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the first thing, after Levi leaves his profession, leaves his livelihood and follows this rabbi, the first thing that Levi does is he throws a party. He recognizes the glory and the authority of Jesus. And the first thing Levi wants to do is for all of his friends to see the glory and the authority of Jesus. So he throws a party. Present at this banquet feast, we learn that there are tax collectors and that there are sinners. We know how the Jews felt about the tax collectors, but this term sinners is essentially referring to people who have lived their life with a blatant disregard for the Mosaic law. The most flagrant of violators. Not the type of person that a rabbi would typically associate with. The result of, this shows us the result of Jesus' preaching, the gospel, was that sinners were repenting. It should be the same result of us preaching the gospel, is that sinners should come to repentance. We also learn that the disciples are there. By intentionally associating with these, those who are unclean outcasts of society, Jesus directly challenges the cultural and religious convention of his day. He's going completely against the grain. And the scribes of the Pharisees in verse 16, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, as they witness this, they ask the disciples, what is your leader doing? What, what, what is he doing? Why on earth would he be spending time with these people? And when Jesus heard, again, he hears it, and he doesn't ignore it, he addresses it. When he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' response is beautiful. It is beautiful. It, and it reveals something that is so critical. It shows us ultimately who Jesus came to heal See, the salvation that Jesus offers is not based on your effort or on your goodness. Ultimately, it's based on your need. The salvation that God offers you, even this morning, is not based on how pious, on how religious, on how good you are. It's based on how much you need Him. That's ultimately the, the message of the gospel. You must recognize that in yourself you don't have what it takes to be made right with God. You need. That's the truth. I need. And my fear is that some of you here today share the same problem as the Pharisees and the scribes. Their problem was they were too good for Jesus. They were too good for Jesus. Some of you here today, your problem may be that you are too good for Jesus. You have conveniently placed yourself higher than sinners and tax collectors of our day. And you have placed yourself higher than Jesus. See, the problem is that Jesus' grace and Jesus' mercy flows down 
hill. And because you are too good for Jesus, the deepest parts of your soul will never be healed. And you won't be saved. Thank you. And you will not be saved. I absolutely love the picture of Jesus sitting around this table with his disciples. This challenges what many of you may think church ought to be. See, Jesus isn't good, isn't too good to feast with the unclean, to touch the leper, the broken, and the sinful. Jesus is not too good for the outcasts of society, the people that nobody else wants to be around, nobody else wants to eat with, nobody else wants to touch. He is not too good for them. Are you too good for them? Let me just say briefly today, it can be really easy to be about this. This idea that Jesus is for those who who nobody else is for. It can be really easy today to be about that and to not be about that. It, It can be really easy to post something like that or to like something like that. It can be really easy to retweet something like that, but not be about that. If you examine your life and you don't see times when you sit around a table regularly with tax collectors and sinners, you aren't about it. That's the scary truth. If you can't look at your life and think through time after time after time, when you spend time, when you touch, when you serve and love the people that nobody else will serve and love, friends, you're not about it. You can retweet your thumbs off, and you're not about it. Jesus is about this life. Are you? Are you? Do you see people in your life that nobody else wants to be with? Do you see them? Do they know you? James Baldwin has a fantastic quote where he says, Nobody is more dangerous than he who imagines himself pure in heart. For his purity, by definition, is unassailable. Nobody is more dangerous than the person who thinks, who thinks that they've got what it takes. And I would say the danger for that person is primarily for themselves. It's primarily for themselves. One of the awesome things about our Savior, one of the glorious and amazing and beautiful things about our Savior is that he radically redefined how we access God. And we no longer have to access God through the religious elite, through the most holy of holies. Jesus came here. He came to earth so that we all could have access to his glorious and strong name. Every one of us. He shows us how he deals with us right to the deepest parts of our life. And he shows us who he deals with. 
those who need healing. And the truth is we all, the scribes and Pharisees just didn't see it. They imagined themselves pure in heart. And it was a danger to them. I pray that it's not a danger to you. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time around the table together. We come to this place, all sinners, and in order for us to seat at this table, it required Jesus' blood to be spilled. It required his body to feel pain. And he tells his church, he tells his disciples that we should regularly partake in what we're about to do as a way to remember ultimately what it cost him. And so we have three little stands that are set up. I'm going to read a passage and then... Um, just as the Spirit feels led, I want you to contemplate what it costs Jesus to meet your need. It cost him his life. And I want you to think about that. I want that to reflect in your heart. And I want you to be moved. And think through some of these questions that I asked you. Are there people in your life that you can identify with who would fit the description of the people at Jesus' meal? And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, Lord, we come before you. And as we prepare now to take um, this cup, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the ultimate sacrifice that the great physician paid so that we could be seated at his table. Lord, I pray that the truth of your gospel, the glory of your son would be evident now, would remind us, would show us areas in our life, Father, um, that maybe our faith is not acting Maybe our faith is idle, Father. I pray you would show us sin and show us your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.
Nothing can save us there. What a powerful name. 